This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, closing the digital divide, how the infrastructure law aims to provide broadband internet service to rural America, and what's missing. Then, the U.S. recently announced it's sending more aid to Ukraine, including more munitions. And with no sign of the war slowing down, the military is looking at ways it can ramp up weapons production. And the State Department warns that Iran should be seen as a major threat after it supplied drones to Russia. That comes as Iran faces growing discontent at home. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Some studies have found that 50% or more of rural America lacks access to a broadband connection. The bipartisan infrastructure law provides $65 billion for high-speed broadband. Nicole Turner-Lee is a senior fellow in governance studies and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Nicole, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you start by defining what is digital divide? You know, the digital divide is a concept that I think we're all familiar with, and the pandemic really exposed just how severe it was. When we think about the digital divide, historically we've thought about the haves and the have-nots in the information economy. Today, we're talking about the digital divide and people who are not connected and their inability to connect to school resources, education, employment, benefits. This digital divide is just so much different than it's ever been because these are important pathways to success. How did this become such an issue and why has it persisted? You know, we've had presidential administrations work on this for a variety of decades. I mean, we're not talking about this happening during the pandemic. The challenge has been technology has also progressed in ways that we can't keep up as policymakers. So as a result, we're seeing a move from an analog, an inline economy to one that's in, you know, in person is no longer relevant. People have to go online to do a variety of things from shopping and working and learning. And so now we're at the stage where we have to make sense of this because we're not going back when it comes to technological innovation. What data do state and local governments actually have about who has access and who doesn't? Not enough. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, we're still in the process as a country in creating a national broadband map. So we still have to go out there and see where does access exist in what speeds and what capacities, who are subscribing to those data uh, assets. And then we have to learn a little bit more about the people, the people who are connected. I mean, the research that I do at the Brookings Institution is suggesting that we just don't have a hyper-local approach to who is affected by not being connected to the Internet. How would you collect that kind of data? Because there's also not just, you know, the issue of broadband access at home. There might be access at the library, which might not help you when you need something in the middle of the night. I know, and that's the challenge. What we saw during COVID is libraries and schools were closed and businesses were closed. So you had to have an in-home connection. The problem is until we collect the right data that actually suggests who's connected where. I mean, we did a report where we're finding people in rural America are not as connected as they should be. And we've known that for decades. The problem is the more poor you are, the less educated you are, the older you are, it just becomes increasingly difficult to be able to have the connection that you need to participate. 
You cite an Ipsos poll uh, in your report that says most people without broadband access believe it's the federal government's responsibility to provide it. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, and I'm writing a book about this, the federal government has always come in and really helped to jumpstart the broadband marketplace. I mean, on the capital investment side, companies have done that, clearly, right? We would not be talking about the companies that we rely upon for our internet service. But we really need the federal government now to come in and help the least connected. I call them digitally invisible people. They're people that we think are connected because we may see them on the metro with a phone, we may encounter them online via email, but they're not having the connectivity needed to apply for a job, to educate themselves, to be connected to family and friends. It is about, you know, incumbent upon us and our government to make sure we're globally competitive. And that means closing the digital divide is everybody's concern. All right, so how do you do that, Nicole? Because, you know, the federal government can try to incentivize private companies, but if there's no profit yeah. in covering a rural area, they're not gonna do it. And that's the challenge. I mean, rural areas, they not only have the topography challenges, right, but they have the challenge of rural poverty. I mean, it's real. Five million people in this country live in rural America. 12 million or five million people are subjected to poverty. That's a problem because we have these systemic inequalities that are keeping them pretty much centrally located. I think we're at a start. The infrastructure bill by the Biden-Harris administration is one step in a down payment on broadband connectivity. We need states and localities to do some data mapping, understand who you're serving so we get to those people first. And we need an all-hands-on-deck strategy. This is not just the private sector. This involves community-based organizations, local churches. It involves schools and libraries, communities coming together to ensure that their communities are not left behind. All right, so let's talk about how. What are your recommendations for how the infrastructure law um, can be executed in a way that will enhance broadband access? Well, I think what we're seeing now is that they've started the process of giving out money and building capacity in local states and, and localities. The challenge is we need data, right? We need to be able to understand at the onset what metrics and data is available to states and localities to properly uh, uh, distribute these monies. I think the second thing that we need is we need a series of, in all honesty, pragmatic town halls. Get local people to a town hall, not the ones just that are in online because people don't have access, but really gauge the interests of what people need. We did that in our recent report on rural broadband development. I think the third thing is that we need to continuously push ourselves on why we're doing this. I think over the years, we've seen the Clinton-Gore administration, we've seen the Obama administration, we see now Biden-Harris administration putting the digital divide first because they see it as a must-have. But really, in this country, it's more than a must-have. It's a requirement for first-class digital citizenship. If we're going to do this right, we need policy to really be hyper-local while it's also solving big problems. And just briefly, you've published one of four reports. Yes. What are you gonna be looking at in those next reports? You know, we're concerned. You know, rural populations experience a lot of uh, problems, and we know that we've not been able to put all of the money to rural communities and solve it to date. It's been decades and we still have a rural divide. And so what we're trying to do in each report, the first one being on who people think is accountable for closing the divide, and we're finding it's the federal government, is getting deeper. How are rural people accessing the internet through anchor institutions and local organizations? They don't have the things that we have at home. They can't get it sometimes. And then our real basic concern of this report is getting to people who are people of color, extremely poor people, 
who we feel at the Brookings Institution are going to be left behind in this tranche of down payment simply because we don't know what their circumstances are. And so we've been using this polling as an opportunity to go deeper. Thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on the program. Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to talk about this. Straight ahead, it can take years to make weapons. Now there are growing calls for changes to make it easier and faster to produce American munitions. Stay with us. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, many experts have speculated that U.S. assistance could greatly impact our own munitions stockpiles. But White House and defense officials say that's not the case. John Ferrari is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a former director of program analysis and evaluation for the Army. John, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So do you believe that's true, that, the, that U.S. Uh, munitions stockpiles will be negatively impacted? Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, we know with javelins and stingers, right, we've, we've put in a third of the global stockpile just into Ukraine, and so we know it'll take about three years. And this isn't the first time this has happened. It happened in 2014 in the war in Syria where the Air Force blew through its global stockpile fighting ISIS. So this is a, a now a recurring item when there's a regional war. So you say that the most important step uh, the Pentagon can take is to set realistic stockpile requirements. Why are they not realistic and, and what do they need to be? So they're not realistic because in many ways the stockpile requirements are set by what the Pentagon thinks it can afford. So a few years back it went to a one war scenario because that was what we thought we could afford uh, budget wise. And so what happens then is you draw down the stockpiles and you can't fight uh, another war and adversaries can take advantage of you. Really what's needed is a two war strategy of stockpiles and long wars because right now the assumptions are for short wars and we see in Ukraine as it drags on the stockpiles and even the weapons take long to replace and they don't even uh, account for attrition of weapon systems. And so the other thing that the Pentagon needs to do is to really take into account what allies need because we are the global supplier of these munitions. And so when allies go to war with us and we have to supply them, they also eat into our stockpile. So we need to account for all of that. And you also suggest setting up a way for allies to contribute money to our stockpile. Yeah, in many ways, right, if we could build an ally stockpile and everybody buys in like an insurance policy and then they can draw out when they need it, everybody shares the burden. Another recommendation is to eliminate indefinite delivery, indefinite um, quantity. It's called IDIQ contracts uh, with the munitions sector. What does that mean and how would it work? So those type of contracts essentially allow the government to say, hey, whenever I need munitions, I'll call you and send money and yell surprise and then you'll produce it. But there's a long supply chain as we see, three years. Instead, what we should be doing is doing five-year block buys where we say these are the munitions we need over the next five years. We're going to contract for them and then industry and Wall Street will put up money to get the supply chains going. And if they can produce them faster and make more money, they will and that's better for everybody. So what we need is to go away from these, these yelling surprise and instead, you know, put money on the table and five-year block buys. You also say that the Pentagon needs to change the way it operates its munition production facilities. Explain that. So the, the government actually owns many of the production facilities and they operate them like military installations, but contractors then run them, places like Radford Munitions Plant. Well, the government runs it, it's got a fire department, a police department, and all sorts of you know, government and, you know, security requirements. 
it forces those contracts who are making it to bake the price of those services into the price of the munition. And so the munition prices go up, and then you distort the marketplace, right? In our capitalist society, price determines supply and demand. And the government is, is forcing these price, the price and distorting it. So what needs to happen is the government just needs to pay for those things that the government requires, and then allow the, the price of the munition really to be, reflect what it costs to manufacture the munition. What is contracting to monopoly? So look at the joint strike fighter. We used to have a very robust fighter market. We had three or four companies that made fighter jets, and then we, we went with the joint strike fighter, and we went to one company, and, and all the other companies went away. And we, we say we don't like monopolies because of all the problems with them, but the government creates monopolies by going with the most efficient contractor and going with one. Uh, the government has experimented in the munitions market with the medium caliber munitions where, where it contracts for two contractors to run and it splits the buys. Now, it's a little more expensive in the short term, but in the long term, you have two suppliers who can compete against each other and keep the supply chains going. And so we have to stop this contracting monopoly and instead keep a robust supply base by having multiple suppliers out there. Uh, you say this, quote, very little in war is more problematic than running out of bullets. I can definitely see that. So why haven't these changes been made? So money. And, uh, you know, that right now the current defense strategy assumes uh, we'll take risk. It's a divest to invest strategy, which means stop buying things now and we'll buy them in the future. We'll do research and development. During the Reagan buildup, we spent $2.5 for every dollar we did in research and development. The 23 budget had $1.1. So essentially, the government has stopped the buying items. And so what, what, we, what we suggest is, no, right, buy, right? That's how you solve your supply chain. You've got to put money against the problem, and you've got to buy. All right, but how much is this going to cost? Give me actual dollars. So, you know, across the board, not just munitions, but all weapon systems, the government could easily take $45 billion out of research and development, which is the amount of money they've increased since 2017, and just put it into procurement. And that would put that ratio. And you could easily then, out of that $45 billion, without any additional appropriations from Congress, right, over five years, that's an extra quarter of a trillion dollars going into procurement. And you could rebuild those stockpiles pretty quickly. But I can hear the R&D community right now saying, what, are you kidding me? Take it away from R&D? Then that's going to harm the future. Well, I don't think so, because, right, that R&D money, when you take that $45 billion away, that puts R&D funding levels where they were in 2017. So this is a, a relatively recent phenomenon where we've gone all in under the, the, what I think is the wrong theory of, hey, we can take risk this decade, that, that the 2020s, the Russians and Chinese are in a threat, and instead prepare for the 2030s. What we know today is the Russians are a threat and the Chinese are a threat, right? We talk now about China being a, th a threat by 2027. So the question is, are you willing to gamble with war this decade uh, to prepare for war next decade? All right. Well, that's the question. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up next, the U.S. says it'll use all the tools it has to keep Iran from supplying Russia with more deadly drones. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. American officials blame drones supplied by Iran for Russia's deadly attacks on Kyiv. Iran denies this, but the U.S. and EU are threatening new sanctions as a result.
Alex Vitenka is the founding director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute. Alex, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So if sanctions were imposed by the U.S. and the European Union, would they have an impact? To be honest, at this point, I'm not so sure. Uh, we just heard from the Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, who came out and pretty much in full defense said, yes, this is what we're doing. We're providing drones to the Russian Federation, and what's it to the world? Uh, others are selling to other countries. Why are you picking on us? That was his message. That doesn't seem very promising in terms of him being willing to compromise, despite the heavy costs Iran's expected to pay for the supply of these drones uh, to this uh, uh, Russian military operation in Ukraine. So what do we know about the drones that are being used by Russia? What we do know is, uh, again, very quickly, if I could give you a history here, before 1979, the Iranian Air Force was very good. It was American-supplied, American-trained. After 79, the Iranian Air Force came uh, crashing down because of uh, not having relations with the United States. So what they have done in recent years is to compensate for that by building up their drone capabilities. So pretty pretty good drone capabilities on the part of, part of the Iranians right now. Uh, on October 18th, uh, the State Department deputy spokesperson said this. Take a listen. Russia deepening an alliance with Iran uh, is something the whole world uh, should, especially those in the region uh, and across the world, frankly, should be seen as a profound threat. What do you think of that, Alex? Is it a profound threat? Well, you know, it's certainly a new type of a relationship, but the reality is these two individuals in Moscow and Tehran, Vladimir Putin and Ali Khamenei, have almost a quarter of a century of personal relationship, working relationship. So this isn't something new. Russia and Iran have been closer and closer over the last 22 years at least. And what has happened in terms of Russia's isolation for its uh, invasion of Ukraine is they're desperate for partners and existing partners like Iran are just that much more important to him as, as we've seen in the last few months. But it's not a new relationship. It's just becoming, as we just heard from State Department, a deeper relationship. So what does Iran gain from helping Russia in its war? I mean, aside from cold, hard cash. Well, I'm not even sure if they're getting much cash. And this is the tragedy for, for the Iranian nation, because they have a ruling elite at the top that have turned their foreign policy into one where Iran is essentially beholden to Vladimir Putin. Iran doesn't have anywhere else to turn to. There is no much money probably coming back to Tehran because of the uh, drones that Iranians are giving to Russia. But the Iranians are not in a position to say no to the Russians. We've seen this elsewhere. And that is, a, as I said, this is because Iran's become essentially a pawn in the hands of Vladimir Putin. Iran is also facing considerable domestic upheaval after the death of 22-year-old Mahsa Amini in the custody of Iran's morality police. What are those protesters asking for? Well, these protesters are different from other protests we've seen in recent years because they are squarely asking for regime change. In, a, in the last few years, you could have seen uh, protesters coming out and asking for reform of the existing Islamic Republic. The younger generation, Generation Z as they're called, people in the 15 to 25 age group that are mostly in the streets, they're asking for an overhaul of the entire system. They want the regime gone. And the, tr uh, the terrifying part is the regime really doesn't have a, 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 a menu to, to offer this youth in the streets. They don't know how to compromise with it, which means, worst case scenario, more bloodshed in coming days and weeks. So I, I know that the uh, Iranian government has not been happy with these uh, protests, to say the least. But any uh, response that you feel has been interesting or different 
The U.S. has uh, been in a tough position because, as you know, uh, the Biden administration has been trying to resuscitate the nuclear deal from 2015 that the Trump administration walked away from. Um, but to, to be honest, at this moment in time, it would send the wrong signal to the world if the Biden administration prioritizes the nuclear uh, talks over providing whatever support, even moral support, to the protesters, because that's the long-term investment the United States needs to make in that country. It's the Iranian people, not the 80-year-old uh, or 83-year-old Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, who, let's face it, he's anti-American uh, in his DNA. He's not going to change uh, his position on that. So why, why try and uh, make friends with him? Instead, one should, if you're Washington, look to empower the Iranian people. So, Alex, do you think these protests will bring lasting change? Oh, I have been covering Iran for about 23 years. I would be very humble. I don't know if this is the beginning of a revolution or this would be another round of protest that will be, you know, uh, successfully suppressed by the authorities. But I do know is the trend. The trend speaks for itself. There's a younger generation of Iranians that have little time or no time for the Islamic Republic, its values, but it's political, economic, cultural, and they're not going to go away. And the regime thinks it can suppress its way out of it, crack down and so forth. Yes, it might work in the short term, but it's not going to be a solution in the long term. All right, Alex. Well, we'll continue to watch this. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is. It is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
we use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.